Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. have been reading through the Bible as a church, and we are almost to the end of the Old Testament. For those of you that are tracking with us on the app or just reading through, uh, I'm excited for this transition. And what it means is uh, that for those of you that have maybe dropped off uh, at some point along the way, or maybe those of you that signed up and never started, or maybe those of you who didn't want to sign up, uh, this is your opportunity to jump back in with us on September the 1st. We're going to start the New Testament. So if you want to just take the next four months to read the New Testament with us, uh, get on the app or just start reading September 1st, the New Testament begins. So as we come to the end of the Old Testament in our reading, we're also coming to the end of the Old Testament in our series of the Minor Prophets. Today we're looking at the book of Malachi, uh, which was, uh, is, is the last book in our English Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, the original Hebrew Bible is a little bit different. It's organized differently, and the prophets come in the middle, and then the end is what's called the writings. So the last two books in uh, the original Bible were First and Second Chronicles, which is why, oddly, that's where we are in our reading plan, finishing up with those books as a kind of summary of all of the Old Testament. But Malachi... Uh, was certainly the last of the prophetic voices uh, that we have in our Old Testament. If we look at our timeline here one last time, uh, I want to just let you know that uh, we made an error. And uh, do we not have that? Or is it? Okay, cool. Um, so originally we produced an outline that had Malachi dated at 533. I don't know who made this outline, but uh, that was wrong. It's 433, and uh, Malachi comes about a hundred years after the exile. They had returned to the land. They were settling in, uh, and so this is where we are in the story. As we come to the end of the Old Testament, I think it's fair to say that the Old Testament is a bit of a wild roller coaster ride. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of roller coasters. I know some of our students just got back recently from uh, worlds of fun in Kansas City, and uh, I-, I love roller coasters. As I've gotten older, I love them a little bit less, uh, but uh, reading the Old Testament can be like a roller coaster in many ways. You see, there's ups and there's downs, there's climbs and there's valleys, there's twists and there's turns, there are rough parts, there are unexpected bumps, even a few moments that leave you feeling like you might just throw up. But the weird thing about a roller coaster is you go on this wild ride, and in the end, you end up right back where you started. And this is the odd place that we find ourselves as we come to the end of the Old Testament. The surprising message of Malachi, maybe even the unexpectedly boring message of Malachi, is that not much has changed. After all these cycles, after all that's happened in the Old Testament, things fundamentally have not changed much since Genesis 
3. The exile doesn't appear to change the people. They're still full of sin. They still cannot meet the demands of the covenant. They are still in need of a deeper and lasting heart transformation. The basic problem of the scriptural narrative hasn't been solved. It's like we come to the end of the story and things have not been tied up. But the good news is that there is a sequel. The story is not over. Though this part is over, there are better things coming. Malachi promises this day of the Lord when he will purify a faithful remnant who will form the kingdom. And so the story is not over yet. So the book of Malachi, just to give you a little bit of background on it, it's structured as a series of complaints or grievances between God and the people. You see, when the exiles returned, their hopes were high that a Messiah would come, that he would usher in all of the things that the prophets, the prophets had promised to the people. There would be a time of peace and prosperity and justice. And instead, what ends up happening is more of the same. Wash, rinse, and repeat. Here the people of God are in this same cycle. Similar to the book of Habakkuk, which is packaged as a dialogue between the prophet and the Lord, Malachi is packaged for us as a kind of dialogue between God and the people. Again, it's a series of grievances or accusations or complaints. It reads a lot like an argument between a married couple or two best friends. And so this morning we're going to look at those very briefly. I'm going to kind of package them, even though it's kind of back and forth. We're going to start with the questions or the complaints the people have toward God. Then we'll look at God's grievances toward the people. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time walking through the close of the book, and therefore the close of the Old Testament, which we have just read together this morning. So first, the human questions. The first question at the beginning of the book is, can we trust God's way is good. So God makes a statement. He says, I have loved you. Verse 2, but you ask, how have you loved us? This is going to be the pattern. God makes a claim. The people say, how, how have we done this? How have you shown us this? And God says, okay, let me remind you. I brought you into a covenant. I brought you into a family, into a people, and I have been faithful to you from the very beginning. Do you not remember I've expressed my loyal love to you over and over again throughout the generations. And yet, somewhere in the human heart, we ask this question, don't we? God, do you truly love me? Given what I've gone through, given the challenges, given what we just look at in the world, God, do you really love us? And the second question builds on that, and that is, can we trust that God's way is right? Not only is it good, but is it right? Is it just? Is it the right thing for all people in all times and places? Chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? They're struggling. Because they look and it seems like wicked people, and it seems like evil, and it seems like darkness appears to be winning in the world at times. God, how can your way be just? How can you be right? God says to them, well, it may appear at times that the wicked are flourishing. Let me assure you, I have the last word in the end. 
And evil cannot satisfy the human heart. And evil will not win. We're struggling to believe that God is all-powerful and all-good. When they look at the world. And God gives them an answer. He says, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way. Whether that messenger is John the Baptist or, of course, Jesus, we're not exactly sure. But he says, I'm going to send a messenger, and he's going to preach a message of repentance. And eventually I'm going to turn hearts around. But he also warns them, do not yourselves be a part of this injustice that you are lamenting. See, it's so easy for us to say, God, look at the world. Look at all these horrible things happening. And yet, should we not fail to examine our own hearts? The third question is, can we trust God's way is worthy? And this is part of the the, the last sort of dialogue that we just read as part of the end of the book. It says, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. The question is, is serving God going to be, in the end, worth it? After all, it's not an easy way. Right? Jesus said, you have to pick up the cross, your cross, and follow me. You have to deny yourself. It's not an easy way to be a follower of Jesus. It's not easy to strive after the commands of God when everything within you and everything outside of you is pulling away from those things. It's not easy. And their question is, can we trust that God's way is worth it? I think ultimately this line of thinking is exactly what led Adam and Eve into the first rebellion. They're questioning, God, God, is your way really right? Are you holding out on us? Are you trying to prevent us access to some good thing that actually would make us happy? Maybe we'll test you out, God, and see. God, is your way really the right way? Or are you trying to keep us from some other path that might bring us satisfaction? These questions, we keep asking them down through the ages. And the people of God have been through a lot at this point. They have ridden the roller coaster ride many times, and they're asking themselves, is God's way really good? Is it right? Is it worth it? These are difficult questions. And God responds by giving them a vision of a future when the faithful remnant will gather and remember and enjoy God's blessings. God's promising them that in the end, it will be worth it. In the end, light will overcome the darkness. In the end, I do prevail. In the end, the narrow path will prove worthy. And although in this life it appears that the wicked may flourish, they are not. And it appears as though the righteous suffer because they do. But in the end, God will purify it all. He will refine it all. We will be the treasured possession of God, is the language that Malachi uses. We will be spared the judgment of God. In chapter 3, verse 18, there will be a clear distinction between those who serve God and trust in Him and those who do not. So what are God's grievances with the people? And consequently us, of course. He has three here that are listed in Malachi. The first one is that your worship is half-hearted. 
They say, but, but how, God? How have we done that? And he says, look at these pathetic sacrifices that you are bringing in to my holy temple. You're giving me the leftovers. You're not giving me the best. You're not giving me the first fruits. You're giving me leftovers. You're not giving me your best energy, your best giving, your best time, your best creativity. That I am worth. Now, here's the thing about leftovers. I'm a big fan of leftovers, food leftovers, right? Because it means you don't have to cook again. It's easier to clean up. I know some people are not leftover people. You're like, I cannot eat the same thing two days in a row, two meals in a row, okay? But here's the deal. Whether you're a leftover fan or not, let me ask you this question. Would you serve honor guests in your home leftovers? You wouldn't, okay? Family members, maybe, right? But but you wouldn't, you wouldn't serve leftovers. And here's the convicting part. God, God is saying to them, look, you are giving me leftovers. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this, I don't read like people long ago who are so different from me that struggled. I read this and I go, yep, that's me. I worship. It's half-hearted at best sometimes. And God deserves our full devotion, our best energy, our best time, our best talents, our best giving. He's worthy of the best of our lives. And yet our worship is half-hearted. And so God's grievance is fair and right. Second, he says, your relationships are broken. They're broken. The first major issue is they've gone against God's commands. They've married foreign women who worshiped other gods. Now, the issue here is not a multi-ethnic marriage. I think if, if you want to go and marry someone of a different ethnicity that's a believer in God, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful picture of gospel reconciliation. It's an incredible thing. I don't think that's the issue now. I'm not even sure it was the issue then. I think the issue was idolatry. See, they were marrying women who worshiped other gods, so they were intentionally entering into a relationship that they knew would compromise their commitment to the thing that should have been most important in their lives. That's the issue. And the result is that they ended up either being involved in syncretism, which was that they took their faith and they attached the other faith to it and it was incompatible, or worst case scenario, they went all together in a whole different direction and they stopped worshiping the Lord God, Yahweh, and they worshiped the gods of their wives. And God said, I told you not to do this, and they see the result of that. And then he builds upon this argument. It's hard to tell if, if they're related or not, but he says, the other issue I have with you is that you guys are so easily just giving up on your marriages and you're divorcing women and you're putting them off. And you're just saying, see you later. So let's talk about divorce for just a minute. Because the Bible talks about it. And a lot of pastors avoid it, and I'd rather avoid it. But I want to talk about it for just a minute. I pray in a grace-filled way. The thing I want to say about divorce is that it's never God's ideal. It was not his, his blueprint for human flourishing. And yet it is a very common reality. It always causes pain. There's always collateral damage involved. But I'll also say, I think that both in the Old and the New Testament, it says that there are times when divorce is necessary. There are reasons for it. 
In fact, I'd probably get in trouble with some people, but there are times when I would support someone in choosing to get a divorce. If you're involved in, a, in an abusive relationship, there's some pastors that say, oh, you got to stick it out, just keep going. I'm sorry, I think they're wrong. I think there are times. I think there are things that qualify. Not all Christians agree on this. I understand that. And I don't want to diminish my view of marriage because I have a very high view of marriage. But we also have to accept that this world is broken. There are things that are less than best. And I also want to say to anyone who has been divorced that there is hope and there is healing. There's always hope and healing in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that there is life for you after that. But I think that the warning about divorce, not just in the Old, but in the New Testament, I think partly it's there not to speak to those who have been divorced, but to speak to those who are still married, to encourage us that marriage is worth fighting for. That marriage is hard, but it's a beautiful picture of of how we experience a new way of being human being. So I encourage those who are married, don't too easily give up on your marriage. Keep working for it. Keep fighting for it. And ask God for the grace that we might model faithfulness, ultimately pointing to the one who is faithful. He says your relationships are broken. And third, he says your hearts have turned. They've turned. You've turned away from my decrees. And again, they say, when have we done this, God? You notice this? It's like, we're never guilty. How have we done this, God? And God says, well, let me start with your wealth. Because that's an important area. It's Hot Topic Sunday, right? Let's talk about divorce. Let's talk about money. God says, if you want to be obedient to me and you want to surrender all that you have, let's start with something that has such a hold on your hearts. And that is your material possession. Something that is so tied up in your identity and your trust. And God says, your hearts have turned from me and how I know it. It's because of how you're treating your wealth. Because you've stopped giving back a portion. You've started treating it like it's your own. You haven't understood that, look, it's all mine. And we understand that all of it is his and that that we are stewards of it. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it helps us to understand that when we give back a portion of what we have for the Lord's purposes, we understand we're not giving anything that belongs to us. It's his anyway. He's the owner of it all. And therefore, we should say, okay, God, This is yours to begin with. I'll give it to you. And God had warned the previous generations about their attachment to their things. You see, when they were were in slavery, life was not good. And then they went into the promised land. And before they went in, God said, look, when you get there, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be better than anything you've experienced before. And when you get there and things are better and you're living in the land flowing with milk and honey, don't forget where it came from. Because sometimes when things are going well in our life, that's actually when we are stray and we pull away from God. And what did they do? They forgot. They said, look at what we've made for ourselves. And here they are again. These people, their ancestors, just a generation before, perhaps two generations before, they had been living in exile. That's not good. Things are not nice when you're living in exile. And here they are. They're back in the land and their lives are getting better. And God says, you know what? You're treating it like it's all your own. You're not giving back. You're not a generous people. You're not reflecting my character. 
And so after all this marital dispute, after all this back and forth, the wild ride of the Old Testament, we're left with this disappointing reality that nothing's changed. We're back to where we started. We're still living in Genesis 4. This is perhaps the biggest theme of Malachi. God's people cannot be faithful to the covenant. These people have not changed at all. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the good news hasn't changed either, that there is a sequel to the end of the Old Testament. And that good news and that promise is based, first of all, on an unchanging God. This powerful line from chapter 3 in Malachi, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. In the midst of all the ups and downs of your life, I do not change. I'm the same. You cannot add to or take away. You cannot change a being that is perfect, that is complete, that is whole. God, by definition, cannot change, and he doesn't change. You see, it's bad news that the people haven't changed, but it's good news that God has not changed in the midst of this, and his offer is still on the table. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. God is ridiculously patient, isn't he? So much more patient than I am. Praise the Lord. God is so patient. Even still, with all these grievances and all these complaints, God says, and here's the solution. Get off the roller coaster ride. Return to me. Stop the madness. Return to me. Return again. I am unchanging. I am unwavering in my commitment to you. And so we see God's unchanging promise. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. It's interesting, this scroll of remembrance. There are a number of, of books in the Bible where it says that God records things seems like there are multiple books, right? Many of us are familiar with the Lamb's Book of Life, this idea that, that, that the names of those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, right? Those who are saved, that it's recorded in a book. But then there's other places that the Bible talks about a book where it seems like God's eternal decrees are written down. Maybe it's a different book. Maybe it's the same. We're not sure. Not sure what the scroll of remembrance, if it's equated to like the Lamb's Book of Life or if it's a different book. But here's Here's the point, and here's the idea. God is taking notes. Now, not in the sense we take notes because we forget. We want to go back and remember. A different sense. In other words, God is keeping record. He is publishing. He, things are not lost on him. You need to have the assurance that God sees all that is happening. He knows. He writes things down in such a way they cannot change. Right? I had to edit the timeline of the prophets because I made a mistake. God doesn't, he doesn't have to edit. He writes things down. And they happen. And he says, you friends who are questioning, you're questioning my love, my mercy, my goodness. You're not giving your whole hearts. He says, look, there is a scroll of remembrance. There is a book written down. There is a distinction between those who serve God and fear him and those who don't. An unchanging promise based on his unchanging word. 
One of the last few verses of the Old Testament is, remember, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him. And this is important because these people will live for hundreds of years of relative prophetic silence, waiting for some new fresh word from God. And you know what they'll have to do? They'll have to keep looking back and they'll have to say, remember 200 years ago? Remember 300 years ago? What was the last big word from God that was given to us as a people? It was remember the law. You see, when we need novelty and we need freshness and we, we want to seek out some new experience, some new word from God, many times, and God is, God is always speaking in many ways, but many times what we need to be rem- reminded of is God has already spoken. And we need to simply remember what he has already promised to us. We need to remember his word does not change. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. At the close of the Old Testament, one of the final words is, don't forget what God has already told you. This leaves us to two last unchanging realities. And I've I've talked to you all about this many times before, but there's such a theme in the Bible of two paths in life. We see it all over the place. We see it in the teaching ministry of Jesus. We see it in the Old Testament. There are basically two outcomes in life, and this is a hard reality, but it's what Scripture says. There is life with God, and there is life without God. There's doing things God's way, and then your own way. There are two trajectories in life that are unchanging. And this is what Malachi says at the end, and this is what the New Testament will say, is that ultimately, in the end, there is judgment or there is hope. There is a day that is coming, the day of the Lord. We don't know when, but there is a day that is coming when we will all stand before God. And that will be a great day or it will be a dreadful day. And for it to be a great day doesn't mean you have to pay your way or you have to earn your way. It means you give yourself over to the mercy of God. It means that you believe by the grace of God and the gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ alone. It means you repent. You turn away from those sins. You turn back to God. And the way you get there is through Jesus. Two realities. One, an unchanging judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, surely this day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. A word of judgment. Now some people say, I don't, I don't really like the Old Testament. I don't want to believe in a God of judgment. I only want to believe in the New Testament. A God of grace. A God of love. Well, it's the same God. And the reality is, that New Testament, Jesus speaks And he says basically the same thing as the prophet Malachi. In John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's where most people stop reading. But if you keep reading, he says, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. It's a day of God's judgment. This is the reality. It's the truth. It's not easy. It's not fun. But we want to face the truth. The truth is there's an unchanging judgment. There's also an unchanging hope. 
in verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and you will frolic like well-fed calves. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What is this day of the Lord? It's great and it's dreadful. Ultimately, it points ahead to the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And is it good or it's bad? Is it good or bad? Well, the truth is it's both. It's great or it's dreadful. And for the repentant, it's a day of mercy and ultimately blessing. And then it's interesting, right? Uh, in verse 6, you get two images. One is of restoration of the people, restored hearts, restored relationships. But then the last phrase kind of holds out a curse, doesn't it? Isn't that a weird way to end the Old Testament? This possibility of curse. And I don't know if I'm reading the right thing into it, but here's how I process this theologically. Here's the truth that there's a curse that is held out there that is coming, but Jesus came and he took the curse on our behalf. He took the judgment. He became the curse. And he offers us a new way of being human, a new life, a new hope. So how will we receive this word? Will, will we repent? Will we turn back? Maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. Will we turn away? It's the message of the prophets to do a U-turn, to turn the other direction. Quit whatever you're going after. Quit. Turn back to God and be restored. Receive his grace. Receive his mercy. Will you pray with me? these things. Father, we thank you for your word. And I, I pray this morning that we would not see it as something that is so far removed from us. But we would see the questions as questions that we ask. And we would understand in God's grievances that we are convicted as well. That your Holy Spirit would show us the ways that we have fallen short of God's covenant demands. And God, may we receive your mercy. Would you heal us? Would you set us on the trajectory of hope? God, would you help us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to find joy and satisfaction in that? God, even this morning, as we have already sung great truth, we want to give you glory in all things. We want to praise you for the goodness of gospel of the gospel. So Lord, we're here today. We want to worship you. That you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.